Good day to you, whatever the day is. I hope it's a great one. I hope wherever you are, it's as beautiful as it is where I am on this Saturday, the first Saturday in November. My name is Sean Barkley. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. As always, I'm so glad to have you along for 15 or 20 minutes as we talk about how to live wisely and faithfully in this wonderful yet often very difficult and, of course, fallen world that we find ourselves in. And So I hope for you these next 15 minutes or so will be like a Holy Spirit shot in the arm as you face whatever it is you're facing today. So I was watching the World Series this past week, and I noticed something that I really hadn't thought about in a while. I played baseball when I was young. I was not very good, but I love the game. And I noticed that uh, batters still use a donut before they go up to the plate. So they're in the on-deck circle, and they put a weighted ring on their bat, and they swing the bat with that weighted ring. And, of course, that weighted ring... Uh, weighs the bat down a little bit, makes it feel heavier, and so when they get ready to go up to the plate, they then pop that ring off and the bat feels lighter. Uh, They throw that ring off the bat so that it's no longer so heavy. And I was thinking about that because it dovetails with Hebrews chapter 12, which is what we are studying today. And let's just dive right in. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is talking about how to live wisely and how to live faithfully. And so he's talked about... um, the, the hall of faith, the, the faithful people who have gone before us in, in uh, chapter 11 and now in chapter 12, he talks about how it is that we do live faithfully. And so let's just begin reading. Uh, chapter 12, of course, begins with verse 1. And the author writes, Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Isn't it interesting that he equates life with a race? And the word he uses for race in the Greek is the word agon, which is where we get our word agony. If you have ever run a race of any distance, you know it can be agonizing. I mean, the only way I'm going to run today is if somebody's chasing me. But there was a time when I ran competitively, and I'm telling you, it could be agonizing. Isn't it fascinating that biblical faith acknowledges that life can be agonizing? Life can be challenging. Life can be wearying. In fact, some scholars say that the word agon actually referred to the the pentathlon in the old Greek games. And the pentathlon was five athletic events in succession. It included running and swimming. Then it concluded with boxing. Can you imagine running a long race, swimming, going through all of this, you know, agonizing athletic competition. And then at the very end, you got to box someone. And so every inch of a competitor's body literally ached, even their cheekbones ached. And I find, as we get started, there are two foundational insights from this text. One, notice what the writer says. If you don't have a Bible, I'll I'll read it to you again. Um, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What I notice right away is it's our race to run. Let us run our race. You don't run someone else's race. We can't run for one another. You have your course, and I have mine. And so God has said, you know, I've given you this life, and no one can live it for you. You've got to live your life yourself. But then what I also notice is, he writes, let us run our race with perseverance that is marked out for us. In other words, the course we run has been marked out by God for us. Often we want to run our own course. We want, to, we want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. 
and we're being taught here by God's word, no, God has set your life for you. God has a destination for you. God has a life that perfectly fits who he made you to be, and you're to run that race. And I know you want to do your own thing, he says to us. I know you want to go your own way, but trust me, God's way is better. I mean, have you ever looked at another person and thought, man, I wish I had their life. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their stuff. I wish I had their spouse. I wish I had their experiences. I think a lot of us do. But we're reminded here, you know, God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to run our course and live our life. And let me give you a little uh, insider information, something I've learned over the years as a pastor to to thousands of people over the years. Um, We don't really want, we don't want to live someone else's life. And the reason we don't is because you and I do not know what their life is really like. We might look at people and think their life is great. Their life might look simple and easy to us, but trust me, it's not. You were made specifically by God for your life, and I was made for mine. And yes, it can be agonizing. But God wants to live the life of faith. And so he, 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 after he acknowledges how it can be difficult, he then counsels us on how to run with perseverance. You know, what are some things that you and I can do to live faithfully and to finish the course that God has set out before us? And so it begins in, I go back to verse 1 of chapter 12. Here's the first thing he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Remember the baseball player knocking the donut off of his bat. Let us just throw those things off that hinder us. And the first thing he says here is, though, consider those who have gone before us. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The very first word in verse 1 is therefore, and the word therefore always points us back to what has happened in the past. There are those who have gone before you and me who are like our cheering section in a race. They have finished their course, and now they are gathered around the track urging us on. If you've ever run a marathon or been to a marathon, you'll note that often those who have finished earlier in the race will return to the finish line and cheer those who are still on the course toward the finish line as they complete their race. And there's something powerful about that. Uh, you know, I've, I've run a marathon before. And I'm telling you, by mile 25, I didn't even know my own name or where I was. I was in Chicago, by the way. But then as I entered this one particular part of the course, there were all these people cheering and I felt a sudden surge. And the truth is, the last mile of that marathon, I ran faster than the first mile. And there's some kind of power there. Understand there are people who've gone before you in your life who are urging you to stay the course, to run your race, just as they did theirs. The place where I'm a pastor was started by a young couple. And it was started back in the uh, early 1960s. They're still living there in Florida. And the, the church, which is a, a very large complex now, was started in their living room. And so their living room, where the church started, is now my office. And I just have this sense often when I'm sitting alone in the, in the office and thinking about the church and thinking about life, I start imagining all those people who were in this office all those years ago. Some of them still living, some of them are deceased, but I just have this feeling that they're cheering for us. I mean, 
saying, you know, you've been called to serve here. Uh, we were called to serve here. We've gone on. So you keep it up. You keep going. You know, there's just the great power in knowing that there are people in your corner. And that's going to help you and I run our race. And there's something we have to understand that's kind of part and parcel of all this. If you and I are looking for human or earthly affirmation, we might not get it. I mean, if we are, if we require the world to encourage our faith, I think we're going to be disappointed. We receive our encouragement from the Holy Spirit, and we also receive encouragement from those who have gone before us. So number one, how do we run the race with perseverance? We realize there are people cheering us on. Well, then in verse two, he shifts our focus away from self onto Christ. And so verse two, he says essentially this. Let me find it in my Bible right here. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what other translations say is look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. The word look is also to look away, to look off into the distance. And the insight here is that many of us tend to look at our momentary struggles, what we're going through in the very moment, and get bogged down by those struggles. But when we look to Christ, we gain a divine perspective. If, if you've ever known anybody who's been through any kind of physical therapy, let's say a person's had a knee replacement, physical therapy is no fun. It hurts. It's tiring. Nobody wants to do it. How does someone make it through physical therapy? They focus on the end goal. They focus on the prize of living and walking without pain. And so the author, first of all, says you're going to fix your eyes on Christ. You're going to have a different perspective. You're not just going to be focused on the momentary and get bogged down by that. But he also says, and Jesus is your example as well, who for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross scorning its shame. How did he endure the cross? How did he scorn its shame? He realized that there was joy set before him. He framed his present in light of his future. I mean, can you and I do that? Can you and I see beyond our present struggles, our agony, and ask ourselves, okay, there is something greater at work here than what's happening in the moment. Maybe ask yourself this question, what consumes my thoughts right now? Am I consumed by self, worry, anxiety? Remember that our ultimate destination is eternal life, and yet we're also promised by God that we'll flourish in this life as well. And so frame your struggles in light of what you know about your future. That's what we're counseled to do. And I love what he also writes in verse 3. He says, consider him... Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of if-then statements. If you do this, then this will happen. That is an if-then statement. If you think about Christ and frame everything in light of who he is, then you're not going to grow weary and lose heart. And so counsel number two. Number one was, of course, We're going to understand we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are urging us on. That helps us persevere in living the life God has marked out for us. Number two, we're going to look to Christ and frame everything that we're going through in light of who he is. We're going to consider him so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. And there's one more thing. He says, you also have to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
And so verses 7 and 9, he writes, Endure hardship as discipline, because God is treating you as children. He said, you know, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. And I know that some of us had human fathers who were not that great and who really were either over the top in their discipline or they just weren't around at all. Um, He's talking about ideally. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? And he goes on to say this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so what does he say in those verses? One, God disciplines us, and God trains us. So let's go back and think about this. If we're trusting in God and he's disciplining us and training us, go all the way back to verse 1 when he talks about throwing off that weight. Remember the batter in the batter's box has thrown off that, that weighted donut. Ask yourself, is there a pattern in my life, something that repeats that is harmful to me? And maybe if it's harmful to me and it's repeating itself, maybe that is God's discipline in my life. So let's use speech as an example. It's pretty innocuous. If we find ourselves constantly saying things that we should not say, after we do that, after we say something like that, maybe we feel guilty. Maybe we feel embarrassed. Maybe we see that our relationships are suffering and we start to feel bad about that. And yet we do it again, and again we feel guilty, (laughs) and we feel embarrassed, and our relationships are suffering. It becomes a pattern in our life. Maybe God's discipline is the guilt we experience, or the embarrassment we experience, or the fact that no one wants to be around us any longer. And so he's saying what God does as as our divine Father in heaven is he disciplines us. So that we can throw that off and get rid of that because it's hindering our race. It's hindering our living our lives joyfully and faithfully. The word discipline, it's interesting. I'm giving you a lot of Greek today, I know, but it's important. It's from the word paideia. We get the word pediatrics from that. Discipline is the act of a parent disciplining a child. And when a good parent disciplines a child, he or she's not doing that to avenge the child's wrong. Or to make the parent feel better, that discipline is done to mold or build that child's character. We don't like it. It's painful. But it demonstrates that we are children of God. When you experience that kind of regret or grief over some kind of sin, and you're feeling disciplined and molded by that, that means you're a child of God. That's a good thing. I mean, you know, Use this as an example in your own life. Have you ever been to a grocery store and you see some child just going crazy, some little two-year-old? crying and carrying on and acting awfully. What do you do when you see that? Well, you go to another aisle. Why don't you discipline that child? Because it's not your kid, right? When we experience the discipline of God, it illustrates that we are his child. And then one more thing about that. He talks about those who have been trained by God's discipline. When we have been trained by it, it produces a harvest of, harvest of righteousness and peace. And the word trained is the word gymnazo. We get the word gymnasium from that. It's the image of God coaching you and me. God is whispering in our ear. God is encouraging us and guiding us, coaching us up. See, discipline breaks down and rebuilds just like a good coach breaks down and rebuilds. And we have to trust that. And so if you find yourself 
experiencing discipline, understand God is training you. And so as we close, there are three possibilities, three ways that we're going to respond to God's coaching, God's discipline. Let me just read again from his word. Do not take lightly the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And he also says, how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? So there are three possibilities. The first possibility, when you feel that God is disciplining disciplining you in your life, don't blow it off. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. A lot of us will blow that off. The other possibility is, and do not lose heart. You know, some of us are crushed by God's discipline, and we just give up and forget the whole thing. No, what he says to do is that third possibility, we submit to the Father of our spirits and we live. We trust God and we continue running our course. So that's a lot of food for thought today on a sunny Saturday morning. I hope you have a terrific week and I look forward to hearing from you as you respond to the well, but also hope you'll be back next week. Have a great one.